0: You are listening to an event recording brought to you by the Department of War Studies at King's College London.
1: Good evening, everybody. Um, Welcome, Professor Richard Sakwa. I think he really needs no introduction if you've been studying Russia for any time at all, um, or indeed the Soviet Union. Um, I think Richard has been a face on the scene for a long time in a very good way. Um, And today he's going to be. Talking about um, the clash of new world orders, uh, quite a dramatic title, um, but I think we would all agree that events have become quite dramatic in the last few years. Um, you know Anything that involves Russia uh, seems to be catastrophized at the moment um, and Richard is going to, um, as he says in his book, provide a new analysis of the end of the Cold War and the failure to create a comprehensive and inclusive peace order in Europe. Um, And essentially, um, this will focus, of course, on tensions between Russia and the West, the Atlantic community. Um, And I think that Richard um, always provides a slightly alternative perspective on events, which I think is very beneficial, and from somebody who has been researching and analysing Uh, Soviet and Russian politics for many years, Um, he is really in a very good position to do this. So thank you very much again, Richard, for coming today.
0: My pleasure. It's a great pleasure to be back at uh, King's College. Uh, um, So... Yes, the title is "The Clash of New World Orders" uh, and a subtitle now uh, thrown in for nothing: uh, "Perpetual War or Transformational Peace." Uh, And in a bit of shameless self-publicity, I've distributed this. So this talk isn't going to be quite that. So it's the it's the next step after the book. So uh, how the thinking is uh, developing? And uh, I want to the hook is indeed the notion of uh, new world orders, uh, because I think that's uh, you know obviously a new world orders uh, has a lot of resonance, but the idea of clash is Huntingtonian in its grandiosity, uh, so it's got things, but also perpetual war also has certain, or perpetual peace has resonance as well, uh, and transformation. So uh, the, the question I want to uh, start asking is a question in the book, but uh, I think maybe more answers, is how did we get into this mess? How did we get, once again? Into uh, what some call a, a new Cold War, some say it's just a continuation of the Cold War. Legvold says it's not the old Cold War; it's uh, a Cold War, uh, taking into account of Andrew Monaghan's criticisms of the notion of uh, misrepresentation of Cold War. Uh, and it makes it even more puzzling is that uh, we've spent the last 30-odd years, certainly the first two decades of it, uh, vowing never to get into that mess again. So it makes it even more puzzling. It's not as if uh, there's deep ideological, regional, territorial, whatever conflict. So, uh, as, uh, I mean, I always like it. I mentioned it in the other book about the... Uh, Chinese news agency Xinhua, at the uh, when the Ukraine conflict began, uh, they basically were saying, you know, take two Europeans, put them in an empty field, and in ten minutes they'll start beating each other up. Put three Europeans, and you'll have a full-scale war. Uh, so, in, in other words, a mocking sort of uh, puzzlement: How can Europeans, a little continent stuck on the edge of Eurasia, uh, declining in population, declining in perhaps in energy, uh, given them I in mean, compared to Silicon Valley and so on, manage to? Go ourselves again into the mess? And why can't we unite the continent, uh, which would have been the most obvious and uh, the powerful motivation at the end of the Cold War? So why did we fail ultimately to achieve that? Um, Before um, moving on to that, uh, um, some opening explanations. Um, Obviously, lots of ways of... uh, of answering it, but clearly I've been arguing for a long time, even at the time, that uh, in the 25 years from 1989 to 2014, possibly 2012, uh, we had a cold peace. We never really had a, an inclusive security order in which all felt comfortable. Uh, I mean obviously Russia is the big one who didn't feel comfortable and because Russia was not comfortable lots of others were uncomfortable as well Uh, so uh, I'm not going to go into all the debates about NATO enlargement but clearly uh, it's just simply an objective fact that uh, we didn't manage to achieve to break through, uh, either in security or indeed in economic terms, uh, some sort of a new peace order based on economic interdependence, based on institutional partnership. In other words, European Union plus others, uh, including Russia, into what uh, Gorbachev would have talked, I'll return to it in a minute, but a common European home or the French idea for confederation of Europe or some other institutional innovation, um, some sort of meta-body overarching something or other. So uh, elements have obviously been restored. Uh, elements of a Cold War have obviously been uh, restored, and uh, with it uh, contending spatial and uh, temporal orders uh, in both uh, time, vision, and space. Um, so uh, we, that's the you know, more or less the obvious uh, element. Um, before talking uh, about all of that, um, you know clearly, uh, the, this what we're talking about reflects deeper shifts in international politics, economic shift of power away from Europe, uh, centre of gravity to the Pacific Basin, uh, to China in particular, but not only a whole stack of other things. Um, so uh, we have. Uh, you know our little European, and initially uh, the subtitle of this paper was actually to call it the little Cold War Little Cold War because it was uh, focused on this uh, marginal bit western Europe uh, and across uh, elsewhere, both in geographical and little also in terms of the uh, um, misitude or the the uh, the, the um, Poverty of its ideological ambition, at least uh, good old Cold War, we had uh, an ideology, we had the communist, we had visions of future, we had utopias in contestation, we had different modernities, you know, that's big. Uh, what do we have now? Just an uh, endless rhetorical uh, hatred, you know, another paper I've just done on this on René Girard's scapegoating and mimetic rivalry and so on, uh, which I've uh, been talking about a long time. So it's not anything, it's just a little Cold War rather uh, miserable in its uh, manifestations, not to for a second deny the enormity of consequences for those caught up in it, of course. Um, So... uh, And why world orders, or new world orders? I actually, uh, in this paper, argue that the concept of new world order itself is a productive way of combining structural and behavioral approaches. There is a long prehistory to the concept of new world order. Obviously, at the end of the First World War, Woodrow Wilson argued for a new world order. He used that term um, that could transcend traditional great power politics, and to this end, the League of Nations was formed. And the term was taken up uh, in a remarkable book by H.G. Wells, a remarkable man, uh, published in January 1940, (laughs) a bit bold time to publish it, called The New World Order. Not, not, you'd have thought, the most propitious time to call for it. But he called for nations of the world to unite on the basis of a legal system um, based on uh, human rights to advance world peace. So the failure of Wilsonian and indeed Wellsian uh, idealism rather discredited the notion uh, so uh, at the end of the Second World War, the term was hardly used. No one was brave enough, after the monstrous nature of the Second World War, to to, to talk about a new world order. Of course, the United Nations was established, but uh, I think the language was simply of remorse rather than idealist uh, uh, beginnings. Um, so, and uh, at the end of the uh, um, at, at the end of the Cold War, the idea, though, of new world order came. Back in big time as we shall see. It was used uh, on all sides. And and the notion therefore um, the idea of clash of new world orders I think captures the tension between multiple projects being applied to Europe since 1989. Um, There's just uh, one other preliminary point um, to to mention which uh, is um, which I've uh, skipped over there but it's basically the nature of the international system. Um, what I'm arguing is that the international system is a two... I mean, based on English school thinking, that uh, it's uh, based on a, a, a two-level system, very simplified. At the top level, we have the United Nations and all the other um, development, the more and more ramified institutions of global international governance uh, Legal, economic, now environmental, and normative in all sorts of ways uh, as well. So uh, this is uh, the top level, what the English school would call the secondary institutions of international society. Uh, At the lower level, we have competing uh, states and world orders. For example, the US-led liberal international order. Uh, on the one side, uh, and we also have, on the other side, a uh, more and more developing, what you could call, a Russo-Chinese uh, anti-hegemonic alignment. Not anti-Western, but simply different, uh, calling for pluralism, calling for, uh, indeed, obedience, or, or um, observance of the rules of international society, as English school people call it, of diplomacy, and so on. So a two-level system, and that's the framework in which uh, this, uh, I make my analysis. Okay, so now I can get to where we want to be, which is to say uh, that uh, today we have uh, effectively, or certainly in the, for the first 25 years after the end of the Cold War, we did have a clash of new world orders. And for convenience, I'm going to give them numbers. (laughs) So we have New World Order 1. Let's talk about New World Order 1, which uh, pluralist transformation. New World Order 1. And these orders, by the way, still exist in one form or another. So the the term New World Order in this modern or this new phase of uh, international politics was first used uh, by Mikhail Gorbachev, in his landmark speech to the United Nations on the 7th of December, 1988. This is uh, the moment when uh, Gorbachev's uh, you know, new political thinking went uh, uh, really made a mark on in international affairs. He effectively declared the, new, the Cold War over and went on to argue further world progress is now possible only through the search for consensus of all mankind towards a new world order. So he used the term... So uh, he outlined what could be called, what in fact I do call, a dialogical view of international politics. That's at the very heart of New World Order One. A dialogical approach. By that, dialogical, using Bakhtin or whatever, uh, we mean that in a dialogical relationship, the actors engage with each other, and as a result of that engagement, both change. Both change. This is uh, Bakhtin's uh, you know, great uh, book on Dostoevsky's novels. The characters talk to each other ad, ad nauseum, as you know, uh, but as a result of these uh, talks, they both change. They both emerge out of it different. Uh, this is the, you know, the genius of Bakhtin in looking at uh, the dialogical novel. And uh, I'm now applying it to international politics. Uh, political dialogism term, uh, right, he didn't even use the word dialogism, but certainly uh, the term political dialogism is the term which I use to describe this. And that ultimately was at the very heart of Gorbachev's politics uh, at, uh, at the end of the Cold War. Um, so, uh, you know, and I, mean, I could quote ad nauseum, because it's, uh, you know, some, such great stuff. Those of you who um, I mean, have looked at it. will will know that um, he went on to stress the you know development cannot be at another's expense as uh, becoming outdated for pluralism, to- toleration, tolerance, and cooperation, and this was all based on what is called the NPT, new political thinking, and it's important to stress that it isn't. It didn't come out of Gorbachev's head uh, like what's it, Minerva from the brow of Zeus. It was uh, a long, long process. A lot of a lot of thinking went to develop the new political thinking uh, internally in the Soviet Union. Twenty or thirty years of ideological development, in particular in the various think tanks, Immo, others as well, um, the uh, um We're talking about all of this. Um, IMMO was the main one, USA USA and Canada Institute as well, uh, and so on. And it represented ultimately a repudiation of the classical Marxist-Leninist foundations of Soviet foreign policy. Uh, Loads of um, classical postulates were jettisoned, including the view that capitalist states were inherently aggressive and militaristic a view that may have been tempered the other two precipitously. Uh, instead, the Soviet Union adopted the doctrine of defense su- sufficiency and so on, um, and it led on to Gorbachev's speech just shortly afterwards in Strasbourg in the 6th of July 1989, where he talked about a common European home. So um, the, the list of th- things feeding into it, but at the same time, the uh, new political thinking was also fed by all sorts of tendencies in the West. You could mention, We could mention the old peace movement, for example, would talk about these things. We can talk about the non-aligned movement uh, way back in the 1950s. We can talk in the 1970s, the new international economic order. So in other words, you could say that this sort of leftist, radicalist, non-aligned, the South, uh, so on. So in other words, perestroika, or new political thinking, not perestroika, new political thinking uh, was fed by all sorts of ideas. Um, and uh, uh, and of course, a reception in the West of these ideas was clearly, um, you know, all very uh, famous analysis. For example, in Time magazine, put it that uh, the uh, argued that uh, there was a danger that the Soviets would gain the moral initiative, and that Gorbachev's New World Order would make security alliances such as NATO and the Warsaw Pact redundant. Heaven forbid and would shift resources from the military to domestic needs and accelerate moves towards European integration. Shocking uh, radicalism of that time, but this shows already sort of a uh, resistance to it. Uh, This was a remarkably prescient analysis um, in many ways. So um, New World Order 1. And then, of course, a few months later, the whole communist, East European communist system collapses, Malta summit, um, uh, and so on. Uh, And indeed, the Malta summit in December 1989, in early December 1989, uh, is very interesting for the moment when New World Order One um, began to uh, meet political resistance, uh, as we know um, when Bush uh, uh, was due to meet um, with his with Brent Snowcroft. Uh, they describe how they plan to overwhelm Gorbachev by flooding him with proposals to catch him off guard and shift the initiative to the American side. So uh, New World Order one emerges, criticism by time, uh, a tactic by um, Bush, the obviously the US H.W. Bush, the president at the time, uh, and then months uh, of controversial discussion about NATO enlargement and German unification and so on. So uh, all of that is going on. So, I'm going to um, skip now. Um, So, but yeah, to say that, in other words, to generalize, to leave some of the detail, um, I want to. um, suggest that um, you know, this was uh, New World Order One, which was uh, critical of, of many things. Um, but basically, Russia tried to transform a type, what I would say, monist or axiological logic of enlargement towards a dialogical relationship in which uh, we transform, a transformative relationship, uh, and so on. So that's New World Order One. I. I think you've got an idea. Then we have, uh, clearly just to finish just say there's plenty of objections to new world order one you could say, uh, dis- even leaving aside, I'm leaving aside the dissolution of the Soviet system, the disintegration of the Soviet Union, Gorbachev, as a politician, that's not my concern. But even within the framework of thinking, New World Order one, the first is, uh, w- w- the question, or this question, is why should uh, the West have bothered with it? And the first is the view that Russia was ultimately too weak to have maintained a sustained challenge, and therefore it ultimately did not matter. And its concerns could be legitimately um, um, ignored. The reason why—I uh, I, mean—that's—I say, uh, Russia is that. These ideas came forwards when the Soviet Union was still a going concern in 1989. The rejection was uh, not because Russia was weak, it didn't really matter at that point, uh, but still in 1989 the Soviet Union was important and did matter. Uh, But of course, later on, Russia was weak and it could be safely ignored. The second argument suggests that rather than being too harsh After the end of the Cold War, in fact, the West was too accommodating and made too many concessions, encouraging Russia's false sense of grandeur and status. This is the view advanced by many radical liberals in Russia, for example, articulated in Garry Kasparov's book uh, called uh, Winter is Coming. Um, so the West was too soft so these ideas were just fancy nonsense uh, and ultimately uh, uh, why should the West have taken into account since obviously uh, Western ideas won institutions uh, predominated and so on the third argument builds on this to suggest that Russia has nothing to offer the world in terms of a positive normative program Um, but uh, we could say that New World Order 1 is a pretty uh, big argument um, and obviously the fourth argument is a realist one. Why should the U.S. and its allies cede the primacy that it has defend, defended uh, all the way through um, and at the end of the Cold War and beyond? I'll return to those issues later. So, uh, leaving aside now New World Order One, I'll move to New World Order Two. So New World Order II, uh, monist enlargement. So while Western societies are deeply pluralistic, there's a deepening contradiction because there is now, instead of a system based on transformation, the premise of New World Order one, we get a system based on enlargement, a very different type of politics. Maybe necessary, maybe not. I'm not making that judgment. But I'm simply saying, it's uh, by, by definition, the politics of enlargement is going to be a different type of politics. It's going to be axiological. It's going to be... Uh, um, obviously it's going to emphasize normative uh, superiority. Um, And uh, obviously the relationship between what can be called the expander and the object of expansion is monological. It assumes that the Atlantic system has solved certain problems of history and has become the repository of all the virtues. Um, The relationship cannot be dialogical in which both partners change. In fact we could say even the deeper paradox is that Uh, after the end of the Cold War, dialectical politics, linear, uh, mechanical, transitological, democracy promotionist, that dialectical politics shifted to the West, paradoxically, while Russia, certainly under Gorbachev, and I think uh, to this day, uh, was advancing a dialogical relationship. So, in other words, uh, uh, clearly the uh, idea of expansion was in the dialectic, at, lay at the very heart of Fukuyama's "The End of History," because obviously he was using uh, a watered-down form of Hegelianism as a, through Koryev. So uh, that's uh, New World Order II is, in short, dialectical, whereas New World Order One is dialogical. Um, so, uh, but in detail. Gorbachev's urge to transcend the Cold War was countered by a very different model advanced by Bush Senior. This was a deliberate attempt to retake the initiative and to reassert US leadership at the end of the Cold War. And, you know, as I say, not a normative judgment, maybe that was sensible. Bush outlined his ideas in his speech first uh, time on the 31st of May 1989 in Mainz where he talked of a Europe whole and free. So, a Europe whole and free, is the slogan of New World Order II. And it was deliberately formulated as a challenge to the transformative logic of the common European home. Uh, it was quite explicit. We look at it, Brent Snowcroft uh, and in their memoirs write about it that we need an idea, and Europe whole and free. Obviously, the notion of Europe whole and free is a good one, but now I think we can begin to see that it wasn't just a freestanding idea, it was embedded in a power relationship and in a power process. Uh, And so Europe whole and free, and therefore I can quote that the forces of freedom are putting the Soviet status quo in the defensive, and so on. Um, And uh, therefore, Europe whole and free. And that term then came to encompass the Helsinki agenda. And uh, the Helsinki agenda, uh, you know, Baskets 1 and 2, one was security, second economics, but basket 3 of Helsinki Final Act of uh, August 1975 talked about uh, the, the human rights. And therefore, the human rights agenda of Helsinki is subsumed into New World Order 2 under the slogan Europe whole and free. In other words, It it isn't a simple defence of human rights. It's the defence of the power system in which the logic of human rights becomes a a project, a political project. Not to say these human rights are not important. We're simply saying it then becomes embedded in a power system and a power project. Uh, So and quite explicitly. So uh, this is and then it became uh, uh, embedded in the. um, Charter of Paris for a New Europe in November 1990. Gob- um, Bush uses the term New World Order in his most extensive form in his famous speech to the US Congress on 11th of September 1990. Uh, while normatively congruent with a vision of world order advanced by Gorbachev, the emphasis is different. He stressed that there was no substitute for US leadership. So, uh, quite an explicit assertion that Europe, whole and free, under U.S. leadership, Gorbachev says, "Europe whole and free, as a community of equals in a dialogical relationship." Same, but not the same. So, uh, and then of course, uh, Soviet Union helps uh, the, the West in the um, in the first Gulf War, and. So, uh, I mean, I won't say all of this. So the Charter of Paris for New Europe adopted on 21st of November, 1990. You know, with all of its fine phrases, the new era of democracy and so on, uh, the focus is on the temporal challenge, um, overcoming the past. But it didn't say much about the new spatial order. And what is astonishing at the end of the Cold War is the lack of debate about a new spatial framework. Everybody rejected Yalta the spatial order embodied uh, and and embedded in Yalta of course Um, but in some ways why Russia quite likes the Yalta idea because at least it talked about space and it it legitimated the language of space 25 years later European Union suddenly woke up and said hang on geopolitics is back in other words that was a tacit recognition that uh, a spatial order had not been post communist or post um, cold war European spatial order had not been uh, established So uh, this, uh, and obviously Yalta, was about pluralism in a spatial context. Uh, So that's why Yalta is so important in this debate. Uh, So in the end, uh, it means that this logic meant that uh, the Russia and the universalized West failed to find an adequate balance in their relationship. Uh, and in the European context, enlargement meant that the subjectivity of the other was taken as temporary until it was subsumed into the expanding project of Europeanization. Itself a strange term that appropriated the universal concept of Europe to the particularistic ambitions of the EU. It is hardly surprising that in the end in the absence of a traditional diplomatic framework, let alone a dialogical framework, the relationship broke down. This is what uh, Legvold puts it very eloquently in his book on a new Cold War, where he says that in the 25, 35, 30-odd years since the end of the Cold War, the relationship between Russia and the West went up and down, varied between cooperation and conflict, but it was on a downward trend all the way. And what I'm trying to do is to answer... That big question: Why it was on such a long-term downward trend? Uh, so, um, my next section is uh, you know from cold peace to renewed conflict. So, New World Order One is based on transformation. Uh, New World Order Two uh, is on uh, en- enlargement, and it has a lot of consequences. Um, we obviously uh, about uh, in the Bill Clinton years, a distinctive type of enlargement policy was adopted despite the warnings from all sorts of people, George Kennan and others, and indeed even recognised by Strobe Talbot um, who who says in his memoirs that the Clinton team believed that the problem was little more than a managerial one and Russian concerns could be allayed uh, by certain tokens, membership of G8 and stuff like that uh, with the Foundation Act with NATO in 1997 and so on. So this, uh, so I won't, I'm not going to go into all the debates about NATO, but uh, and indeed enlargement of the Atlantic system certainly was not intended to marginalise Russia, but uh, you know tokenism is tokenism in the end. Uh, its structural logic did precisely that. So this is where the founding act and all the rest didn't really work. Uh, so what the big question, tension between New World Order and New World Order One and Two, can be reduced to the following that basically, at the end of the Cold War, Russia says, look, we can join what they call the historical West. And uh, if we join the historical West, we can then create a greater West. That uh, we would then, within the greater West framework, Russia and the former Soviet states, we can then continue our building of democracy, the institutions of modernity, democracy, uh, economic reform and so on. So this was the, the, the vision which uh, Gorbachev explicitly talks about. Yeltsin wants and Putin also in his early years was talking about the transformation of the historical West to a greater West. Working together then we can become obviously synergies between Russia uh, with uh, natural resources and advanced technology and managerial cap- capital uh, of the West. This didn't work in a European context. The idea was uh, that uh, Russia would then have some sort of framework in which the uh, uh, the smaller Europe, if you like, of the uh, European Union would be transformed into, transformed into a greater Europe, uh, the common European home. The idea of a common European home largely died in the 1990s, but it was revived by go- by Putin in the Bashar Europa project, but explicitly um, feeding off the Gorbachev idea. So this, of course, didn't happen either. So to achieve all of this, it, wasn't, it would not have taken enormous amount that uh, we're talking about, and there was, there was talk of some sort of uh, mediating institution. So this is why the tension between New World Order I and two is so difficult, because uh, in some ways... NATO enlargement, all these issues, and EU enlargement even more so, are not, obviously, they were not threatening, they were transformative and very positive in many ways, And so many ways, what's the problem? The problem is that they're not taking place in the framework uh, in which they would then be, as it were, mediated by something bigger than it itself, when it wouldn't, in other words, take place in a context, in a logic simply of enlargement, which is, as Sergei Porosigov puts it in his great book, on Russia and the European Union, it means the death of diplomacy because enlargement simply means take it or leave it. That's the way the European Union works, and uh, it works very well in certain contexts. So, uh, this is the, uh, the attempt to uh, achieve that. And obviously, uh, given the fact that Europe whole and free and the human rights agenda, then is absorbed into a model of power politics of new world order too. It then also. Um, generates resistance, as we saw, various uh, colour revolutions, uh, The what I would call the uh, development of trans-democracy, where democracy uh, is uh, embedded in this Kantian logic of peace, uh, as a peace order, but it also means the transformation of the other. So there's a whole, if you like, over-determinations take place within the framework of New World Order too. Uh, Overdeterminations, which uh, mean that ultimately it was obvious to anybody with eyes to see that we were heading for conflict, uh, as we um, already in 2008. Then, of course, you've got other things going on at the same time, uh, and one of them is that uh, you know a number of factors, other things going on. So the first one is the failure to create uh, to create some overarching mode of reconciliation in what I'd call a mode of reconciliation between these various enlarging forces. So the second one is the radicalization of New World Order II as well. So it, Because given if it's hubristic vision of victory, language of victory uh, and so on, that you ended up, uh, which this is a function, realists would say, typical uh, function, radicalization of the, uh, a function of the typical pathologies of a unipolar system. Uh, so uh, this is when you have the ideology of U.S. leadership becomes ever more formalized, and indeed of American supremacy uh, with neoconservative uh, program for the new American century. So just as New World Order one had deep roots. The radicalization of New World Order too, also has, and this is way back to Reagan and earlier. Reagan, of course, marginalized the neocons, didn't like them, sent most of them into exile. Uh, if he had a Siberia, he'd have sent them there. He's, maybe he sent them to Wisconsin or Kansas or perhaps further. Montana, I suppose, would be the equivalent. Um, so it's uh, uh, whatever. Uh, so uh, he, uh, 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 so, uh, but. They came back, obviously, uh, the, the whole, whole lot um, came back uh, at the end of, um, at the end of the Cold War, and C- Robert Kagan, and so all of that, quite explicitly, a logic and a dynamic of uh, And the third factor which um, breaks down this sort of tension is that the emergence of Russia as a global actor. So uh, Russia was offered membership of the historical West. It was not excluded, but we know that the membership price, as Dimitri Trenin and others argue, was too high, which would be uh, basically the membership ticket was accepting U.S. leadership. Germany and Japan did in 1945, didn't have much choice, but also it was obvious developmental uh, option. Uh, France and Britain did it after 1956, the Suez Crisis. And Dien Bien Phu before the Nigerian War, uh, Britain, of course, uh, after f- France, after 1956 and 1957, found a new project that is a European Union. Uh, Britain hasn't ever found an object, you know. Uh, as we know, uh, you know, lost an empire, hasn't found it all, and it's still looking. Um, so it's uh, whereas Russia is in that same position. It's also far- looking for a place, but within this model of New World Order one and two, we can begin to see that um, you know, Russia's back, but it's back, but nowhere. It's not embedded in any particular framework. So uh, we have all sorts of things, obviously, exacerbated by uh, US repudiation of the ABM treaty and so on. So by the time Putin comes back in 2012, he's in a militant mood. Uh, you know, I won't go into a thing. I mean, my argument endlessly has been between 2000 and 2012. He was looking for a way to reconcile New World Order One and Two. He was looking for a way to finesse these issues. The New Realism was all about that. Even the choice, Trenin makes his argument, of Medvedev, the most liberal thing. He says, okay, I can't work well with the West Munich speech of uh, February 2007, but okay, look, this uh, most liberal uh, guy, Medvedev, maybe you can work with him. Yes, and they did. Medvedev went to Lisbon, um, we talked about NATO, great stuff, but then uh, abstained on the Libya resolution early the following year, and we know how badly that ended. So, we have uh, New World Orders uh, after the Cold Peace, which... Suggests now uh, we're now into a new ball game, and let me tentatively suggest, and I'm very interested to hear uh, other people's uh, thinking about what uh, we can begin to say about where we are today. So, New World Order One and Two effectively was the structuring format in my mind of the Cold Peace years, 1989 to 2014 after 2014 uh, we have new processes again deep roots didn't just suddenly start by any means but i'm going to very tentatively suggest uh, two more new world orders uh, so i'm going to uh, well but before that well um, before that i just say that uh, we have those ones these now shift into uh, the the other ones uh, were temporal they were coexistent over time the next two uh, are more spatial Not entirely, but more spatial. So, New World Order 3 is the US or the struggle to maintain hegemony. Uh, The uh, idea of hegemony. This is where you you get the offensive realist John Mearsheimer and others. So, uh, in this uh, model, uh, you'd fit uh, Trumpian neo isolationism. So, Trump does not intend for a moment to reject US primacy, but it's a fundamental shift in the manner in which it is exercised Um, all the way through in the Cold War years from Bush Sr. to uh, Obama. It was exercised through U.S. leadership. Multilateral bodies, building alliances, uh, developing globalization, so a a, a great multilateral format. The Trumpian model is from leadership to greatness. In other words, America first—it's just a hooked in which you can put it. That whole ideology—I've uh, just read uh, Joshua uh, Green's book called *Devil's Bargain* on Steve Bannon, and it makes disturbing reading, I can tell you. Uh, so, uh, there's—I mean, there's a lot feeding into that model. It hasn't come again, obviously, from nowhere. So, New World Order Three is the one where people talk about the breakdown. Of the traditional US led liberal international order. It's mutating. Trump, of course, says NATO is obsolete. Uh, there's all sorts of things going on. So it's a fundamental shift. But uh, uh, I won't go into that. Uh, I can return to that. I want to go to talk about New World Order 4. So, New World Order 4. Is uh, If New World Order 3 is all sorts of degeneration and uh, new patterns of the Atlantic Alliance uh, and so on, New World Order 4 I would call pluralistic realignment, pluralistic realignment. The central claim of New World Order 4 is that the US-led liberal international order is not synonymous with order itself that uh, within the framework of English school, you have uh, the international system is made up of a developing network of distinct orders to create what my colleague Trina Flockhart calls a multi-order world. Uh, So you have the US-led liberal international order with all of its difficulties going on at the moment, maybe not (laughs) led so much by US, but the liberal international order, but it's a power system, New World Order two, on the one side. Uh, then you have uh, an emerging Russo-Chinese alignment. And I've been arguing it for years. I certainly, uh, it's quite clear. It's deep and far deeper and far more benign than uh, uh, people have recognized. Um, that uh, it's been, uh, again, long in the making um, in which the uh, alignment is against the notion of US leadership, but it's not anti-Western. It's not anti-American either. It wants to, uh, and more than that, uh, all the way back from Xi Jinping's speech back in Seattle, nearly four years now, and then, of course, in Davos this year, and uh, his splendid speech to the 19th Party Congress just a couple of months ago, which outlines a new model of great power relationship, all of that stuff. It's not nugatory. I think these things are important. That in many ways, though, they touch in, in a different way, from different ideological and cultural context, into Gorbachev's model of New World Order I. So we have uh, the Chinese vision of a new type of great power politics, which is precisely touching on, in many ways, possibly the same sources as from the South, New, World, new International Economic Order, uh, out of non-aligned movements and so on, of New World Order One. So we have now New World Order One and New World Order Four touching base. And, of course, hugely amplified. Now you've got, is not little old Russia, tired, demographically challenged, and so on. But we now have the might of China aligned with New World Order I to create New World Order Four, And it may have a better chance of actually being able to shape uh, the structure of international politics. It claims to be peaceful, uh, developmental, and so on. Obviously, there's tensions and contradictions even between Russia and China. Don't for a minute deny that. But we do have uh, one. So uh, you know, Gorbachev, for example, to say the, the links. I'm not going to quote endlessly. Once you get started, uh, once one starts quoting Xi Jinping, there's no end to it because uh, there's so many. The Chinese love have these marvelous little phrases and words which I love to uh, quote um, So, uh, but in my framework of English school thinking this New World Order 4 is this, well let's call it anti-hegemonic alignment not anti-anything, it's for. so it's uh, against it's the only thing it's against is hegemony itself Uh, And actually, in many ways, U.S. leadership, maybe the West would be healthy for it to give up its hegemonic ambitions as well. Um, That you can have, it says you can have order without hegemony. That basically, Xi Jinping's speech in Seattle and all the way through, and Putin, are constantly stressing commitment to the top level of international society obviously, uh, in the breach in many ways, but that's not the point. It's the United Nations, international governance, so quite clear commitment to the top level but criticism at the horizontal level. So, vertically committed to global international governance, Xi Jinping globalization, they've all benefited from it, Russia included. Uh, but they will not accept the view that it belongs to the West. You, some of you may have seen this latest uh, excellent volume on the English school called The Globalization of International Society, edited by Chris wright Smith and Tim Dunn. It's a superb historical contextualization of English school thinking to say, guys, this stuff at the top—the United Nations and global order and international law and so on—does not belong to the West. That particularistic West. It's a universal. So the challenge today, in New World Order Four, is to universalize universalism, rather than the privatization of New World Order Two has taken it over or claims to be some sort of total relationship to it. So uh, New World Order Four represents the partial opening up, repudiation of any triumphalism, common challenges, common destiny and obviously with Chinese economic muscle behind it. Uh, so uh, obviously threatened and challenged by uh, many other things, but that's, that's the, uh, the framework. And also New World Order 4 surprisingly now loops back to Western societies. And it loops back, and it's, uh, for example, the Bernie Sanders insurgency challenge uh, in the last, last year's U.S. presidential election. I'd even perhaps go so far as to say, well, I'd say very simply, that Jeremy Corbyn, our don't all burst spontaneously into song. Um, so our uh, Jeremy Corbyn uh, is also, of course, as a man of the 70s, not surprisingly, where I'm saying New World Order one gestated in the 70s. Uh, and then so, indeed, we could say that the sub-subtitle of this talk is From, Cor- from Gorby to Corby, as it were. <laughs> um, couldn't to resist. I couldn't resist, <laughs> No, I can't, um, but, it was, but it's important because I actually do think, in many ways, the ideas, I'm not talking about the actual practices uh, of the Labour Party at this time, but simply, certainly, that, that idea. So it's actually, instead of the chaos, the, the dark and gloomy idea of the disintegration of the liberal international order, which, in my view, was never liberal, never an order, uh, and, so, and so on, but it was certainly US-led, is now we can move on, perhaps, if we can seize the opportunities of New World Order 4 for a genuinely... Uh, cooperative, maybe the relationship between Russia and China is a model what, what can work, obviously major tensions with the other um, partners in BRICS and Shanghai Cooperation Organization obviously with India and so on, but yet it may provide the framework in which uh, we, ne- we get to a genuine development of a, 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 an international society which works um, for all <laughs> as uh, we could put it, so I, I think uh, I'll stop at that point, thank you
1: Great. Thank you. So you.